Okay, this is The Habit of Words, the Nick August podcast, where I talk with writers and creatives about using and abusing language. Tonight, uh, I'm talking with journalist, essayist, and novelist, TJ Martinell. How are you, bud? I'm doing well. Appreciate you uh, coming on. Oh, say that again? I appreciate you coming on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk about uh, this kind of stuff. I've, uh, I've talked with both of your cohorts already from Masculine Geek, um, and I've talked with them more often over the last few months. You and I haven't really talked all that much, uh, so I was really looking forward to this. Um, the most important question I had on my mind is the one I'm going to ask first. How often do people call you Martinelli? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very often, uh, enough to where I, I, it doesn't bother me because our yeah. name actually used to be Martinelli back way back in the day before, um, they immigrated to the United States. I think they were up in Canada and half the family changed the name and then moved down. So I understand how people can easily get confused on that kind of thing. Uh, it's kind of like for the, those of you who are young enough to have watched Bobby's world, it's about this kid whose last name is generic, but everyone calls him generic. <laughs> they're from they're from Minnesota, so they're from Cappy's uh, part of the world, and um, so yeah, I uh, I actually was going to change my name at, at one point uh, as an author to Martinelli, but then uh, it just I think it just it, it creates confusion um, having a, a professional uh, because I'm a professional writer as a reporter, and then also I'm a, a fictional author. I think people have just gotten confused. Okay. Well, I read in your bio about how you will start with fiction. You got interested in fiction writing at a pretty young age. And you even wrote a, I think I, think I read you wrote a novel in, in the first grade to entertain your friends or something. Can you go with that a little bit? <laughs> it was basically a ripoff of a book I had read when I was a kid. <laughs> I was, I had a really good skill at uh, mimicry. So I could, um, I, one time I wrote a uh, biography uh, paper on President Washington, and my teacher was so impressed with it. She told my mom it had to have been um, plagiarized. And, <laughs> but I had written, but I had written the whole thing in her classroom, and she said, "No, TJ just memorized the entire biography book. It wasn't a long book, but it was just, you right. know, I wrote, I, re I memorized everything I needed to know. So I wrote the whole thing. So it was the same thing with this novel. It was about you know these kids who were trying to find a treasure on some like kind of like classic Treasure Island type thing." Um, so it was it was fun. I still have it uh, up in my my chest somewhere in the attic. So did did your friends actually read it, and were they entertained? You know, I actually wrote short stories when I was in second grade. Um, very very short. We're talking like flat like your flash fiction type stuff, and right. uh, not quite the same material. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, about the same length. But you know, I actually had people asking me to write more stories. So I, I was doing that for a little while, and then I stopped. Really, I, there was a couple of times I was, it, when I was having my wisdom teeth taken out, I started working on a, fi a fictional novel um, about kind of related to Toy Story, but not the same, but very, very different, but all, along the same strain where there's toys that are alive, and I was trying to explore some sort of philosophical stuff that I was reading at the time. Um, and then I got Nicole. Um, that was, I think, I was a senior, 
and I had just finished reading um, Starship Troopers. I read the book in the whole day because I was on my, you know, on the couch. And I was like, I gotta write a book. Like, <laughs> I gotta write a book like this. So I was gonna write the same thing, except use toys to make the same, you know, kind of points that I wanted to make at age, you know, arrogantly make at eighteen or whatever. Right. Were you a were you a big Heinlein fan as a teenager, or was that one book? You know, I didn't read a lot of science, a whole lot of science fiction. Uh, my uncle, one of my uncles, is huge into science fiction. And he loves Heinlein. I've read some of Heinlein's work, and I, I appreciate it. But I just I tended to read more mainstream books in in terms of genres. So I would read pop books that were well known, but I didn't read a whole lot of obscure books or that was were really niche. I think uh, Vince was is more um, into that kind of stuff. Um, I was reading, you know, the, the Arthur Legends, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, Treasure yeah. Island, kidnapped, all the kind of classic. I really love the the adventure stories, um, yeah. that, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Um, so, in prepping for this, I read some of your news articles. I read some essays, which I've been reading along anyway, and uh, got as far into the stringers as I could. And the first thing that I I wondered about, since you write in three different disciplines do the requirements or the conceits of one discipline help you or hinder you when you're writing in the other disciplines like does the does journalism and the and the requirements of that help you or hurt you when you're writing fiction do they complement each other how does that work you know it's that it's a it's a challenge but it's also i think in some ways it's helpful because with the, the, the thing about uh, fiction and nonfiction, people tend to get them confused in terms of how difficult they are or the challenges in terms of writing. Nonfiction, in my my experience, is a lot easier because it's not as subjective. It's pretty straightforward. Now, there are different ways of telling the same story. Right. But, and, and you, you know, how depending on how much legwork you want to do on a journalism story, you can do that. I just try to make them as readable as possible. My, my, my objective as a reporter is to inform people in a way that they're not going to get bored, but the kind of stuff that I write about now is not exactly, you know, romance novel material. It's more of like very policy-based type stuff. So, but I'm trying to make it um, uh, readable for the average person. With fiction, it's difficult because what one person thinks is really great, another person really doesn't like. And so, if you this is uh, I took a fiction writing class when I was in uh, at, for, for a, a little while at the University of Washington and it helped me understand story but you also have to be careful about who you let into your head because they people tend to want to put your their voice into your writing and I think that that's more shows up in subjective stuff like fiction essays are actually sometimes the easiest for me to write like the the reason when I wrote the 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 rise of the alpha wolf that I wrote in one sitting because I had all this, this, these thoughts that I'd compiled in my head and then I just put them down on paper. And that's a lot easier because I, I think writing essays for me is by far the easiest because um, there's not a lot of room. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's what, what I'm thinking and my thoughts. And people can't say, well, you should have said it differently. It's like, no, this is me saying it. This isn't you saying it, right? Whereas fiction, you've got the narrator, You've got the voice. You've got the, the the different perspectives, and you know, should you have shown this person like you know how many point of views do you show in a book? 
and that can right. be um, and that's one of the challenges I'm dealing with the stringers uh, the last book in it is you know do I include this character or not from one of the previous books that would be really kind of change the tone of the book and from a red pill perspective it would be very interesting but I I don't know so I've taken some time to think about it but I wouldn't have to worry about that with an essay because it's only from one perspective it's mine so when you're so in thinking about essays and about news articles and obviously I haven't read everything but the news articles I've read that you've written seem very, they're very tight. They're very focused. There's a lot of discipline there. It's very, yeah. Like <laughs> that show, just the facts, ma'am. And it look, it's almost like you're, and, and this is my question. Are you consciously as a journalist trying to be solely factual? And I'm not familiar with the lens. I don't know if it has an editorial perspective so that, you know, you don't have to inject, you know, any of your opinion in there because your readership is already going right. that way? How does that all work? You know, it's a challenge for a reporter today because the, the field has really changed since I was, I guess the way I perceived it when I was going through college. I originally wanted to actually be a, a detective. Um, I, I read the Sherlock Holmes novels and I wanted to be a detective and I talked to a police officer or a detective and he said, here's what you're going to have to do. Here's what you're going to have to deal with and all this other stuff. And I was like, I'll write about it, but I'm not going to deal. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm a, I, I do, I haven't had to deal with this stuff, but I, because I do volunteer firefighting stuff um, with the local district, I know guys who've responded to calls and the stuff they've seen just as a firefighter or uh, EMT, I don't want to deal with. So, uh, you know, now it, on top of that, now you got to track down the killer, right? So yeah, I didn't yeah. want to do that. And, but I had this idea of journalism that was similar of you're trying to find the facts and you're trying to figure out what the, the, what the reality or the truth is. And I, I don't know when this was, but I just always believed in going after the truth, no matter how unpleasant it is. And obviously being you know being part of the community that i'm in um and in this part of the internets uh that wasn't a easy process for me it was incredibly painful because you come to terms with a lot of the things that you thought were true that aren't but you keep moving forward what i found with journalism is that most people who are becoming journalists were activists they saw journalism as a a, a political imperative it was almost like being a um like a not a priest but somebody who was there to deliver the message of a, a specific narrative and there was there was an agenda with that so uh, that's kind of what i see myself doing is just presenting the facts the actual facts and trying to tell the whole story as much as possible that, that as much as one person can do mm -hmm. but at the same time the difficulty is when i see that i'm i'm able to piece together the facts i can make an observation but people I talk to will not make the observation. Right. So that's where I kind of balance out where I say, look, there's this 100 pound gorilla or 800 pound gorilla in the room that nobody wants to point out. But I'm going to like, I feel like I'm not going to point it out, but I'm going to just raise my hand and point at it. I'm not going to say it. Right, right. But it's like, you know, some of the stories I've done, I've, I, I, I've, provided a little bit of my own, um, not spin, but just rhetoric, you know, a little bit of my own personality, because like, I, 
you, you have to almost um, when they talk about being objective and I think that what they confuse that with is being dispassionate or indifferent or ignoring, pretending like there's not a right and wrong. Well, in some cases there is. If somebody says somebody else did something and the facts say they did, then that's what the story is. It's about the fact that they did. Um, right. You know, there's some things that just aren't that they're retort. People always say, well, it's up, not up for debate. The facts are the facts. Okay, I've looked at them, and people are their rhetoric is not matching the facts, and so that's the. But that's the nice thing about my job is as long as I stick to, you know, the the the, the statistics, the figures, the data, the spreadsheets. Um, I'm uh, I try as much as possible to be very um, information driven in what I write about. So I write a lot. I've written about wildfires. I've written about uh, ecological stuff, envir environmental policies, and whatever. And I'm always trying to look at statistics. I really don't like just listening to people give um, uh, meaningless statements and making it about people because it's really about what are the ideas that they're trying to convey and what are the facts on the ground. You know what? How many people? How many people? <laughs> you know how many people are actually succeeding or what? What you know whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I mean that was that. You know it seemed to me that uh, my takeaway was you weren't necessarily injecting a lot of your own perspective, but it, I was wondering if by choosing some of the topics you chose to write on, if you weren't kind of laying it out there and saying, all right, now you make the connection, you know, right. I'm not going to for you because that's still, you know, your decision. That's up to you. That's not what I'm here to do. But you know, the, the better that you can accurately and truthfully describe something, the better somebody else, the better opportunity somebody else has to make up their mind about it, I guess. Right. And the, the interesting thing is, and this is what I would say for anybody who from from kind of my our values or beliefs or whatever you want to call it, if you're more of a, a free market or you believe in just if you just believe in following the truth wherever it leads you, I guess that's probably the best way to start it. It's actually you have an opportunity as a reporter now because you're going to go after stories that other people won't touch. Mm -hmm. They just won't. And so you will have that. You won't have a lot of competition on certain topics. There's stuff that you can write about for for the rest of your life and other people will not talk about them. Um, you know, people, they won't they, you don't have to lie about something. You just as a reporter, you just have to pretend it didn't happen. Right. That's that's right, a one right. way to control the narrative is just not to point out. It's like a a, a war correspondent never reporting um, a law a battle where the your side lost. The impression you're giving is that you're winning the war because all you're reporting is that the battles have been won. And then suddenly enemy troops are marching into your capital. It's like, yeah, I just I never reported lies. <laughs> right, right. Or it's like when um, you know the press would never show or write about FDR's being or, or uh, JFK's, you know, women coming in and out of the white house, stuff like that. They, yeah. there was it's funny. You bring that up. I was thinking about that. I, I, I was thinking, Oh, is he going to bring up FDR? Yeah. They would not show FDR because, uh, and not that this is a terribly fascinating compared to some of the stuff that was actually going on. That was far worse um, in terms of who was getting appointed to what offices. But they would uh, not show him in the wheelchair. They didn't want to show how he was actually a cripple. Now, I think part of that was he had downplayed the severity of his polio um, uh, 
injury, like the paralysis or whatever. But it was the press was. Um, I don't want to say it's it's not a scandal, but it's just the fact that they would acquiesce to um, maintain an image, and kind of the same thing with like you were saying with JFK, and and frankly, there were all these other presidents who were well known for doing stuff, but right, then right. what happens is if you become an enemy of the press, you know, back in the day, you would uh, they would suddenly report on it, right? Right. Um. Okay, so moving on to essays, you posted an essay last year, last June, I think, titled Authenticity is the Future Coin of the Realm, which I, I thought was a really good essay. And it was interesting because it not only engages questions and criticisms many have about primarily online relationships these days, be they social, sexual, platonic, fraternal, whatever. Right. Uh, but in the old days, the closest thing we had to something like that that we have on social media or virtually now, it was just pen pals. You were writing, you know, sometimes we, we did, <laughs> you know, we all had pen pals with somebody in Canada or Germany. I don't remember what. And uh, but the essay brought up some interesting questions that I think also end up getting into themes of the Stringers series. Um, and I wanted to revisit that because they parallel themes in William Gibson's work, Philip K. Dick, all the old cyberpunk, you know, stuff yeah. that got that moving, Matrix, um, even her, where, you know, Joaquin Phoenix develops a relationship with a female, female artificial <laughs> intelligence right. in a, you know, in a computer. So what made you write that? And did you really think that it was was this something that bugged you or do you really see this as a major issue that people are constantly revisiting because of how the internet has brought people so closely together or in a way that they feel close right it's a funny thing that um the way it started reporters don't get paid a lot and that's just as a career thing. And I think in the Pacific Northwest, it's even, you know, some of the lowest. And so I was trying to think like an entrepreneur and try and come up with a way for for newspapers, because I was working for a newspaper at the time. I was like, okay, I want to figure out a way to generate more money for the company because then they get more money and then I can get paid more, right? That was kind of the whole thing was like, you know, how to how do we translate the value and all this other stuff? And I just kept thinking about all these different, I was just I was sitting in my car. I had a 20 mile commute every single day. And some days I'd sit in traffic because some idiot on the one lane road would get in an accident. And I'm sitting there thinking about it. And I finally just said, well, maybe, maybe the only way to get people to read newspapers again would be to ban them. <laughs> I go, wait a minute. And then I started thinking about, and I, I love 1930s movies. I was watching a whole bunch of James Cagney films, which, of course, most of them concerned prohibition. And one of them was The Roaring Twenties, which is about a bootlegger. Um, yeah. You know, he's doing the whole smuggling thing. And I go, wait a minute. Let's do. And then the originally it was actually going to be a science fiction book. Um, it's set in the future sometime. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we can have it where, um, you know, the, the information is smuggled. Uh, with uh, with like that, and they're like the new bootleggers and all that stuff. So that kind of picked up. And the one of the things I don't like about science fiction is I always have to come up with the technology. And people, 
I, I feel like, and maybe this is just me, people tend to feel like as though you're making a commentary now based on the technology that you use or you invent or something like that. You're trying to make some statement. I just was didn't really want to get hung up on that. And also then you have to deal with the aesthetics, which I'm, I think I've kind of figured out you just don't deal with it. You, you focus on the characters if you don't want to deal with, um, you know, creating all that stuff. But then I ended up thinking, you know, I was, I was, um, I think I was watching uh, Live Free or Die Hard, where the the one guy, Freddie, is on his CB radio, right? Yeah. yeah. Communicate. He's like, that's, you know, so he's using old technology. And then I was reading an article about people who are using, um, oh, yeah, you know what inspired it? It was when Ed, I was working on this novel when Edward Snowden's whole NSA revelations came out. And of course, I had to rewrite the book because that was part of what the book was. I was like, I can't set this in the future. It's happening right now. I got to change the book. Um, <laughs> one of the things that the Kremlin did, uh, apparently, from what I understand, is they ordered typewriters to do some of their work because what they realized is that Edward Snowden walked out with massive amounts of U.S. documents on a thumb drive, and that would have been that would have been practically impossible back in the old days because they had to rely on paper. And so it really got me thinking about some of the advantages of old stuff. And then years ago, I was, I always take some memories that I have and just put them away because I know they're going to be relevant. I was talking to one guy who um, said that he and his friends were on the, he called it the dark web, not mean what it means now, but it was like pre what we consider to be internet. It's like on the internet, but it's just in a different, like you don't use the same URLs. Like you don't right. do www, you do something else. But he's like, that's how you avoid. Uh, that's how they avoid. I didn't fully understand it, but he was basically saying we use like the original internet that's out there, and I didn't fully understand the technological terms. He was kind of a geek when he was describing it to me, but I thought, yeah, like people are using old stuff to evade modern controls because they're based on modern technology. Right. And so I thought to be kind. And then of course I was watching 1930s movies, so I said. I'm going to set it I'm going to I'm going to use old technology because you know if you're if your entire way of enforcing the law is based on the internet what happens when people are not on the internet right you know like look at what we're seeing now with social media and stuff like what happens when people um stop doing that they start doing well, honestly like w one example is they just go private everything becomes private you know you have private websites with private chats and all the other stuff and you're not doing public forum type discussions anymore um that's yep. one possibility but you know so that, that's what inspired that book it, it really developed out of a desire for me to make more money <laughs> as a reporter well sure um so thinking about that thinking about the the online stuff and identity as we start, you know, getting close to talking about stringers, um, it's almost like, I mean, can you really, can you really be authentic online? And you know, I don't just mean in presenting yourself or pitching something. I mean, in terms of having some kind of actual relationship or something that you want to call a relationship online. Is that even really possible when you compare it with what a relationship is like as it evolves in person? I think that the physical will always be superior to the um, digital. And I was thinking about this because I just this weekend bought 
the vinyl record version of the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. And I'm listening yeah. to it. And the reason I bought it is because, and it's interesting that they're selling new soundtracks or new movie stuff on vinyl, but there's a reason why, because the quality just feels different. And so, um, but it's also, as I've said to people, you have a buddy who lives next door. You, he is always going to be closer to you and to have a closer relationship than somebody that you have everything in common with, but they live 3000 miles away. All right. There's just, there, there's, there's something that, um, if you, I think that the, for men, the heart of a relationship is a collective or mutual experience. And so like where you've done something together, men just can't be, it's like, you know, this is, I, I was talking to a, um, a, friend where he was lamenting how easy it was for women to just get together and hang out and why for men that wasn't as easy and I said because we've got to be doing something we can't just get together and get a beer and have that be it like we got to work on a project we got to be working on someone's house fixing their car helping fill out uh, their their walkway or whatever it is but we have to be working on something right. and so if the physical allows you to do that now you can do that online I suppose but there's always going to be that it's not even it's not the uncanny valley it's I, I i wrote an essay on my original website called doubting thomas with an iphone where we're, we always have in the back of our minds this kind of lingering doubt is this person really real and the only way we're going to know they're real is if we actually see them and you know shake hands with them and look them in the eye and then we know that they're they are who they say they are online um and i don't think that has anything to do with the, just the rampant um dis uh, lack of authenticity that we see online. And I think that that for me was partly what inspired it. The, the essay uh, about since uh, authenticity is that I, as a person who the idea of pretending to be somebody I'm not online one, I don't use an alias for what I do. I'm open and I use my full name so people know who I am, but I, I, I to deceive other people. You first have to deceive yourself about who you are or about what you're doing because like why would you pretend to be somebody you're not if you that means you're not proud of who you are then why don't you just change who you are right, right. And then that I, I have a theory that people prefer the avatar avatar meaning you know it could be it could be me sitting here talking to you but i could be pretending to be somebody i'm not i could be you know whatever but whatever the artificial thing is i think a lot of people prefer the avatar because that also allows them to keep their avatar. They don't want to interact with the real you. They just want to interact with the you that they yeah. they inject, can you know can uh, conceived or you know that they projected onto or something like that. They have a there's this they have an ego investment in something and they want you to be that person and then they can be the person they want to be. You know, and I think that that actually is not. That that's an extension of our own on uh, real life because I remember when I was younger I was trying to get to know people at like social gatherings and I would get pushback or not pushback but sort of like you know this idea of you're getting too deep you know you're actually trying to get to know me and there's something that they're hiding and there was actually an interesting uh, touching on what you were just saying I know some people who didn't like the movie I I thought you know, it wasn't the, the greatest movie ever made, but Ready Player One touched on a lot of things that were really fascinating. And there's that one scene where um, the main character's fallen in love with this girl and he's telling her he loves her. And she says, 
you don't know me. You only know what I want you to know. You see only what I want you to see, and that's what you're in love with. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and of course, in, in real life, she turns out to be kind of the same person that she is. She just is insecure about a birthmark on her face. That's like, you know, compared to what most guys deal with with online dating, that's like a minor, <laughs> that's a minor flaw. Like if the worst thing that she's hiding is a birthmark on her, you know, like it doesn't look horrific. It's like, yeah, I could deal with that. You know, you're not, as one of the characters says in the show, in the, in the movie, because she could be a he who weighs 300 pounds and lives with the mom in Detroit. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens all the time when I hear. Yeah, yeah she's not. She wasn't catfishing. She was just goldfishing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think though, it's harder to be. And you're asking if it can, you can really be authentic online. I'm actually trying to work on an essay that touches on why men struggle with sincerity online, and. Rollo Tomasi made a point in one of his essays about how for something to be authentic, it has to be in, in part private. Um, I think he was talking about religion and, and religious views. And I can see his point. If you uh, talking about some things that you're really passionate about or sincere about leads right. to vulnerability and announcing that to the world, you're telling people what your Achilles heel is. You're like your vulnerability, you know. People don't champion their vulnerabilities online. They th when they do, it's it's like it's fake yeah. or, or they're trying to sell something, you know, um, it's it, what people are, what they struggle with. They don't want to talk about. That's why you end up finding out that some guy that, you know, you thought was doing fine, you know, ends up, uh, you know, he's been hospitalized for alcoholism or he's been, uh, you know, in the, he's in drug treatment or he's got whatever it is, but he didn't talk about it because why would you talk about that stuff online? That's you're, you're afraid of confronting that. So I think that that is, can people be, I don't, I think people can be authentic and sincere, but they can't just, it's sort of like with, uh, you know, with one thing that some of us, some men are learning with, with uh, dating is you can be honest, but don't disclose everything, right? Like saying no is not the same as saying no. And I'm going to give you a thousand word essay on why I'm saying no, just say, you know, you, you can be who you are. You just don't have to tell people what, what you're all about, I think. Give them, give them the answer, but you don't, you know, you can tell them what time it is. You don't have to show them all the gears and everything behind the clock right. face that, that got right. you there. Right. So, so getting into the stringers, and, I've, and I've, I've gotten several, you know, pages into the first volume. The first thing that struck me is a relationship and the dialogue between the dad and the son in the first chapter. And it seemed very vivid. It seemed very natural. Is that based on or modeled on real world characters or is that totally imagined? It is totally imagined. I actually did a podcast because I was getting some people who were saying they were asking me about the girl. They were asking me about the dad. Like, they're like, who's the girl? I was like, no, there's the dad is completely made up. Um, you know, my my own dad has no interest. Like, I don't think he's ever read a poem in his life. Um, okay. Has no. He's a he's a uh, uh, math guy, so he's totally opposite. Like, no artistic um, desires or interests whatsoever. We've never had conversations about Tennyson or Poe or anybody else like that. I just was thinking about um, trying to show the difference between, uh, in terms of technology, early on in the chapter. But honestly, what inspired that was. 
I was just so sick of the anti-father rhetoric going around in the world that I said, I want to write a novel about a boy who is has a positive relationship with his dad and his, he's driven and inspired by his dad. Now, you know, nice. the, um, and that's actually what I'm also, I'm working on a, um, a new novel right now, which is also based on a young man who's trying to get back to his dad it, just in a, a different environment. It's a fantasy novel. Um, but I, I, I'm, that's partly what's inspiring me to write stuff. I, I like writing about, you know, the, from the masculine perspective, but I also feel like as a male writer with a red pill lens, I want to start injecting some positive uh, father portrayals where, you know, sure. they've, they've, they've made the son clearly who he is and given him, um, you know, a positive uh, uh, impact. And that's what helps them get through whatever they're going through and that kind of stuff. So to, to <laughs> give a long answer, no, there was no, there's nobody uh, based on, uh, on that. And, and some people will say, well, is, am I the main character? No, um, I, I can see how I used a lot of real life experience, but he's fun, fundamentally a word I use a lot. He's not, um, he's not me. Well, he's a reporter, right? Yeah. And, and he's at the same age I was. I mean, I, I used part of what I was going through at the time because uh, I was doing a, a kind of an internship type thing. But none of the characters um, in that book were based off of anybody I knew. Like the only character who's really based off of anybody, there's one character I I would casually think about Humphrey Bogart, kind of like a what would Humphrey Bogart say in this same type thing. Like that's okay. it. That's, a, that's occasion. It's like, okay, I don't know what to say. What, what would Bogart say? He'd probably say can it, sister, or, you know. Something, something kind of like that. Um, so one of the things that dad says early in the book is he and the son are talking about writing and the dad's talking about how it's good to write by hand because it slows you down and forces you to think. That seemed like a pretty clear policy statement right there to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... So there were some things that I was based off of real life experiences. I was having back problems for a while and I ended up writing parts of this book on a notepad. And yeah. so I ended up thinking, I had to think more out what I was going to say because it takes much longer to write. I also started using one of my typewriters um, for parts of the, for working on the book, but also just to, what would it be like writing and all this other stuff? And then I realized, wow, this must have taken a long time for someone who's, if you're writing shorthand, you can write a lot very quickly. But if you're writing kind of like the stuff that they wrote back in the day where it had to be legible for the average reader, you know, you're, you're before typed sets or whatever, you had to think a lot about what you were writing and be more deliberate um, as opposed to, and I also was thinking about social media, you know, people just type something on their, they do the tweet, you know, they send out something. It's just kind of like just an offhand remark um, as opposed to if you're writing a letter to someone or you're writing an email, right? You don't write in an email what you would write in a letter, I think. I think people would be more um, – I, I think they would take more time thinking about it because you don't get to just change it unless you're using pencil. But also um, you're spending more time thinking over what you want to say. Right. It just, well, it's, harder, it's harder to edit like it is with a word processor. Right. And, you know, when – so in the in the book, unless I got this wrong, there's this prism contraption, which is essentially an implant 
in your head, which Roy calls the thought processor and, and just thinking about a prism and thinking about his language, describing it as a thought processor. The two things that came to my mind were, you know, kind of thought police in a way. And then also, you know, a prism breaks out light into different bands. It shows you how to look at something. It's almost like it's not just a tool to help you type something faster or do something faster. It's a way to control how you think or what you think about. Yeah, I I don't, and this is the challenge with this book that I had to kind of be careful about is addressing some of those things and then it would end up being about a, a different, it's a different story than what I want to tell. Um, an example of that is I really don't, and I don't want to give away too much of the book for, for you and others who haven't read it yet and who are listening. I, I, there are drones in the book, but I don't really go into how that would actually impact people's lives because they're used as surveillance um, because inevitably it would have just changed what the, the theme, like the visual theme of the book. Um, mm -hmm. And because I was sitting there thinking, well, why don't they just do this or do that? And it's like, no, that's not what this book is about. So, um, but with the prison, yeah, it's, it, it's, um, I didn't go as far with that where they're controlling people's minds, but what they do do is they control um, what people are allowed to say uh, and publish online. Um, because if it done, it been the thought thing, the thought police, uh, different kind of thought. <laughs> um, if it had been like thought policing, it would have been a very different type of book. And uh, the, the structure, it's kind of like if you've seen the movie Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, that movie makes no sense. It doesn't work with cell phones, right? Right. Because they have to pick up a cell phone and say, hey, our dude, this dude's out. Like, no, it's a movie about how the guys are trying to get to a pay phone to call their, their cronies, and Schwarzenegger stops yeah. them or whatever. So I just thought how that would have fundamentally changed the structure yeah. of that movie um, where he'd have to have been breaking everyone's cell phones to prevent them from making phone calls. So. I didn't, and I might deal with that in the next, the, the final book is this, the desire to control thoughts as well. But um, it, that's the one challenge of science fiction is the, the way the technology impacts people and their behavior. Because I'll give an example. Let's say I have it where people wear face masks to avoid detection by drone sur surveillance drones. Well, now it's a book about visually about everyone wearing a mask out in public and then yeah. taking it off when they go inside their homes, right? Then now it's a it's a it's a book about authenticity in public and all that other stuff. But I just I I didn't and it, it, even with the prism and the, the some of the stuff that goes on there, I don't really deal with awesome authenticity online in this book. Um, you know, not to give too much away, but that's that could have been what the book was about, and I just didn't deal with it. Um, to the extent that, for example, Ready Player One, the film version, I haven't read the book, that right. that dealt with that more because the book really doesn't take place um, online. Right. As the, well, and you know, to go back to what you were just saying, the, so if they're making it, sort of trying to control what you can say and where in more of a public space, then it's almost like, would it be almost, more like they're trying to keep people from being able to connect and to organize or to support yeah. each other and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really about controlling what people can what people can say. And so 
I, I did try to be a little bit lo like logical based on some of the arguments that you hear today. So for example, in the book, journalists are licensed the same way a doctor and a lawyer is. And the, and the argument is that it causes um, damage for just people to make stuff up, right? Like disinformation, misinformation. I mean, and to keep in mind, I wrote this book in 2013. It was published um, in early 2016. So this was published, uh, written, published before the whole fake news thing really picked yeah. up where people started using that term on, on both sides. So then I also said, okay, so what are some other logical extensions? Well, we hear often that people will say that the founding fathers never intended for the second amendment to apply to, you know, semi-automatic rifles or AR-15s, whatever. And I was like, okay, let's apply that to the first amendment. The founding fathers never anticipated the internet, right? And so what if a Supreme court came into being that ruled that the First Amendment does not apply to anything other than speech and physical presses, like newspapers, right? Right. right. And so that would allow them to censor things online. And then what if the laws were written to say, you can't say something that is like, you have to prove, like the opposite of um, uh, innocent until proven guilty, you have to prove any assertion you say online. So you have to factually prove it. So like, you know, you, you know, as people will commonly say, oh, where's your sources? Where, where's your citations or whatever? And so that, that forces people to have to prove something instead of saying it. Now, some people could get clever and just say something as a question, right? <laughs> now, right. right. And what's crazy is I, I, in the book, there's censorship officers in every news site room. That was a policy that was being explored by the FCC to kind of ensure that uh, there was balanced reporting in newsrooms. They were gonna put uh, officers, uh, that was a couple of years ago. That, that didn't occur because that was back um, during the Obama administration, but um, some of the same rhetoric, and I think people get a little hung up on this sometimes, is it's not about the literal, it's about the, the philosophical idea of, you know, having getting government, allowing government to restrict what people can say and not say and how I think the only diff the main difference between my book and what we're seeing now is government really isn't censoring so much because th they have big tech to do it. You just what you do is you create a business that has a monopoly and then you just control people through the monopoly. Whereas in my book, it's a government and it's very direct as opposed to what we're seeing now. Well, I don't know if you've been following this and I've only barely read or watched anything about it, but there's been it seems to me more extreme or more definitive steps taken in Canada towards this. Yeah. <laughs> in a couple of guys that got seriously harassed by what I assume is the Canadian version of the FBI or something for uh, books or articles they published about Trudeau around election time. And they were trying, the government's argument seemed to be, you're not allowed to publish this around an election time or something, which sounded crazy to me. Right. Uh, you know anything about that? You know, I remember watching the press conference where one of Trudeau's cronies was saying, was trying to beat around the bush, but he was essentially saying that they wanted to license um, people. They want to license um, reporters. And one of the things that we, we always think about, or people will say, oh, they can't do that. They can't license. They're, they're never going to be able to do that. 
okay, they're not going to do it directly. They'll go, they'll maneuver around. They will make it so that um, it's very difficult and it's very risky for you to to do stuff unless you're, you know, a part of the approved group. It's kind of like with big tech. People will say build your own platforms. Well, it's incredibly difficult to do, and you're you, you, like, you know, with Gab, right? Gab's trying to be an alternative Twitter. Well, it's getting deplatformed left and right um, by all these very critical infrastructure services. You know, you have uh, the domain servers denying that you've got payment processors denying their platform you've got people being kicked off of uh, mailchimp just all this crazy stuff and so it, it's sort of like you know the the, the water um the utility provider being able to turn your water off because they don't like what you're doing with your water or the phone company being able to cut you off because of what you're saying on the phone you know all this stuff that, that used to be pretty common sense like you can't do that but now when we're online for some reason that's considered acceptable and so this is why I think in some sense, we're going to see a return back to physical stuff because there's gonna be so many restrictions um, and risks. I mean, saying something in public today or with your buddies in a non-recorded conversation isn't gonna get you in trouble, but if you're saying it online, it's there forever and potentially someday uh, it could come back to bite you. And so I think that, I just wonder if we're gonna to move to a much more I, um, insular private society where um, people don't want to be photographed, they don't want to be video uh, video recorded by people they don't know. Um, there's going to be a lot of laws. I, I think that people will move away from Facebook and just have very private websites. I, yeah. I, that's a possibility. I mean, I think one of the reasons why they ha uh, people haven't been getting in trouble for stuff that they say on Facebook or Twitter in mass is because it would cause, I think, a complete collapse of social media. Um, you know, they rely on user data, and the reason people tolerate them selling their data is because it's not being used to blackmail them. The moment somebody starts blackmailing somebody, saying, "Hey, we've got this dirt on you," you know, you better do what we say because we bought this information from Facebook. That's where your like Facebook stock plunges because somebody sues them. Right that kind of stuff i don't know i it'll be interesting to watch i think we might see a black swan event in that in that area yeah and you know the my generation is a little bit different because most of us don't really want to be photographed and you know it, it, it's taken me like a year to get comfortable enough that i would even go online and do what i'm doing right now with you i had to psych myself up to it for like a year <laughs> yeah. and uh and, you know, because I, you know, and but for my kids, for people who've grown up pretty much doing that from the time they're in grade school, it's just a natural thing for them and they don't really think too much about it. And that's gotten them into trouble. Right. And it's also going to be, I think, difficult for them to break from that. So for me, I've already gone back to buying paper books and reading them more than my Kindle because just the reading that screen all day keeps me up at night. If I want to read yeah. right before bed, I do have that problem where it'll keep me up at night. Whereas if I read a paper book, you know, 10 pages in and I'm asleep with the book on my chest and I wake up in the middle of the night like that. And I, yeah. and I've gotten where I, I try to be, even though I'm doing this right here, I spend far less time online doing anything, I think, than I ever have in the last 10 years. So yeah. I, I see it becoming kind of a burden. 
I I find it I, I watch <laughs> I, I still I'm getting rid of it, but I have a box TV and a VCR that I sometimes watch old videos on. And part of it is uh, it's not just a memory trip lane, uh, memory lane trip, but it's also I like watching the old commercials because they showed how uh, back in the late 80s, there was this huge fascination with being able to be better connected to people. It was showing some commercial where you you know someone was able to send a photograph over the phone line, you know, yeah. with AT over to Paris from their their home in Chicago or whatever, and how cool that was that you're able to communicate with people like that. And I think that we will see a return to the physical stuff because it's going kind of like with the vinyl record. Like, why are they selling a vinyl record of Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack? They're not selling the old. The, the, and then I bought some Frank Sinatra because I think the novelty wore off on a lot of the new stuff. Um, you know, Kindle was cool when it first came out. It was cool to have so many books, but then. When when the novelty wears off, there's got to be value, not intrinsic value, but just the value of, of what you have. And then also, people want something to be real uh, that you can hold and see. And you can't hold and see a Kindle book. It's it's a it's an electronic. I don't even know quite how <laughs> to be honest. This is how technologically uh, amateurish I am. I don't quite know what a file is digitally in terms of it. Like, the, how the information is stored. I wrote a book report for years ago on like a computer, how a computer works, but that was back when Windows 3.1 was still <laughs> in play. But um, I, I think we will see that at some point. Uh, it kind of, I think that Ready Player One, I keep referencing that film, but I think that really tapped into um, a sense of nostalgia for something that was that pe a lot of people don't know. So I think that, that may go back to that. Like we may see a move away from digital film because one of the things that it does, it, it, the cheapness, the, the ease, and the, um, uh, the, I think the ease with which we use it makes it cheap, right? When, you, when, you, when you're taking photos with, a, with film, you're gonna be more selective about what you take. But when you have a camera on your, uh, when you have a camera on your phone, you're just gonna take pictures all the time. You know, when you're in a museum, you're like everybody's always taking pictures. They're never actually enjoying the moment, right? I think that yeah. that's where. Um, I, I but the other part of it is people are lazy. <laughs> it actually takes some work to put the phone away, you know, to right. get the digital to go get the film processed. It takes work to to do that kind of stuff. But maybe it won't be a mass. I think it might be a subculture where you know you go to a restaurant and they. There's no TVs. There's, you know, maybe a radio playing, but they ask for your phone at the door. Yeah. They want to. They don't want to have people on their phones checking out their phones. They want people to be social, and that's part of the the whole angle to get you in, um, because most restaurants offer kind of the same food. You know what's interesting about that whole this this part of the conversation is that when I was in grad school, we spent an entire class session one day, and this was in a. Um, this was in a crime fiction class, actually, which was really cool. Oh, nice. We, we talked about how we were kind of divided in the class. There were some of us who didn't like posing for pictures, didn't generally like going on vacation and taking a bunch of pictures because my argument back then, and this was with film cameras, mind you, was that if you spend all your time looking through the lens, you're not really experiencing anything. You're documenting something that you didn't really get to do. Right, and, right. And my thing was always, I would rather go experience it and then write about it later 
than spend all of my time taking pictures. Now that didn't apply if I caught a big fish. Of course, I wanted. I wanted. <laughs> sooner or later, we're all hypocrites, or we, you know, our 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 pet ideology only goes too far. But I think that's been a that's been a concern for a long time. And you're right. Now it's even easier. And I'll even find myself doing that. You know, if I'm out doing something, and and you know, if it's I'm out on the water. It's a pretty day. I'll take as many pictures as I can because I know one of them will probably be great. And I don't want to, you know, I want to have that now, uh, whatever that means to actually have a digital picture. Um, yeah, it's, I think that, and I was talking about this with, with my buddy the other night, we're going through a very fundamental, a very um, significant transformation in terms of how our society is structured because of technology and the internet. And we really weren't prepared for it. Um, we're, we're still in the experimental phase. So for all we know, things could really go back, not go backwards, but just go a different direction where, because right now it seems it, it, you, you have this weird where everyone's in the same, it, it feels like, especially when I'm on the, on the internet, everyone's in the, the whole world is in the same room. You know, you're on Twitter and someone can talk to you from China or Japan or, or from maybe not China, but uh, from, from somewhere over the world. But it's on, in some sense, it's cool. You get to connect with people that you would otherwise never meet. On the other hand, there's sometimes when you want to have conversations that require some common ground that is impossible in a public forum, mm -hmm. in, a, in a public arena. And so I, and this is why I did that article, why your online discussions go nowhere is because a lot of people are trying to have discussions that are just completely inappropriate for a public setting. Um, and frankly, yeah. most of them are inappropriate for an online setting at all because there's so much nuance involved in a lot of uh, either high uh, hot button topics, very sensitive subjects where you have to really understand who you're talking to um, and I have enough time having I have enough difficult time having conversations with people in real life because of uh, their solipsism. They they don't think that they need to ask more questions. And maybe this is just me being a reporter, but they don't think that to ask more questions before making a comment or an observation because they presume things in their life or their experience is the same in other people's. They assume that it's a universally held experience, and that's that's just not the case. Or people have to some degree lost what I would call old fashioned social discourse. Yeah. But it's where you discuss something, you ask questions, you give your opinion, you defend a position, but you're not defensive about it. You're rational about it. And it almost seems like for many people, they are a hair trigger away from fighting anybody because they just, right are constantly on the defensive for reasons that I don't even understand or know or really care about, but yet that seems to be the case online. Especially. Yeah, that's one of the frustrations I have. Uh, on top of just being, I argue in good faith. I never do stuff just to troll people. I'm not an ankle biter. I don't nip at people's heels. Um, I enjoy having uh, conversations because I'm always – I'm intellectually curious. I'm always interested in listening to somebody who argues or discusses something in good faith because that's how I, this is almost a, it's a, almost a superpower. If you're willing to listen and actually not be solipsistic and not, uh, and, and, and 
and question or just challenge your own thoughts, you're open to a lot of different perspectives. And even if you don't agree with them, they always add things to your life that you just never thought about. I have uh, occasionally I'll have uh, topics with or conversations with people. I don't agree with what they say, but they make comments about stuff that I just never thought about because I their life is so different from mine. Sure. That. And, and the other thing I noticed is um, a lot of these conversations that if uh, done properly, you end up hearing uh, arguments that you don't hear online because online tends to be the most flamboyant, bombastic, and provocative, whereas some people have actually meaningful things to say. But again, being sincere online makes you vulnerable. So saying something like, you know, this is how we feel. And it shows that you care about something or that you feel harmed or hurt over something. Right. And people just go after you, make fun of you, denigrate you. And you're just like, why am I even bothering having this conversation with people? So like, is that is, is the ability to slow down, to think things through, to consider other perspectives? Yeah. Do you think that's a one of the driving reasons why people should still read books? Do you think that yeah. that sense? Yeah. And the, I, I was taking this um, uh, class on writing, like I was saying, at the UW, and one of the things we learned about was the when you're trying to tell a story, one of the most important things is the POV, like the perspective and uh, you know point of view, and how many points of view are you telling? Because the point of view that you give determines who you want, how you want, what emotion do you want the reader to feel about a certain character. An example of that is from Shakespeare's uh, Macbeth. Macbeth, on the surface, is this murderous, traitorous usurper of the throne. But the bard gave us, as the listener, the audience, the reader, insight into his inner thoughts. Like his, the, the point of view is from inside his head. So we see how he's struggling morally over what he's doing, and he's torn over it, and he's guilt-stricken. And so he becomes a tragic figure rather than just a merely a repulsive one because the reader is then able to empathize with him because he's probably struggling with the same things that a lot of people do is like, why am I doing something I know I shouldn't be doing? And so giving a point of view enables you to empathize with them because you're going on this journey with them. And an example of that that's a little bit more light lighthearted is, um, or not just more light, was Shouts of the Empire where it's giving uh, the book where it's giving the perspective from Darth Vader's point of view throughout the book. And it's revealing that this is in so much as he's trying to, you know, make Luke serve the emperor in reality, he's trying to be reunited with his son. Like that's the, it's showing that his, that is his weakness. That's going to turn him over to the light side. Like he's, he's desperately trying to keep his son alive. Who's being hunted by this um, by bounty hunters or whatever? But he has to pretend like he's not. He's indifferent in front of the emperor, and he's you know plotting to that they're going to rule the galaxy. He suddenly becomes almost a heroic figure in the story, which I thought was really cool because he's Darth Vader. He's the villain in all right. the other movies, but in this book, he almost becomes. You're almost rooting for him as like as if he's a good guy, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I think that that's another thing where people need to read more, at least read more uh, fiction where they do a good job of showing different points of view. You don't always have to do that um, because if you don't want a villain to be sympathetic, you want everybody to just despise him and that, that works for certain characters. But when you, when you show their point of view, you're forcing someone to walk in their shoes with them. 
I think just the in addition to that, just the uh, just the the mental energy or I don't want to say gymnastics because that's negative kind of a negative connotation. But to read a book, you have to internalize every one of the characters in there, whether they're good or bad. You have to you have to you you create their voice in your head in a way or at least you amplify it based on what the author gives you. And I think you end up experiencing what every character experiences. And that in and of itself, I think makes you grow in a way, even if it's just a little bit, it makes you grow in a way that I'm not sure you, the mental process in watching a movie is the same thing. No, and and that's where, and that's a very, a very interesting point. And I think that that's why people should not try to expect from a movie what a book can provide or expect from a book what a movie can provide. A movie can show a lot of subtleties. And this is the challenge as a writer, and I'm working on this with my new book. I'm trying to be subtle, but in a movie, that's much easier because all you need is just a character giving a facial expression or you're doing a camera angle that reveals something that the, re- the person can pick up on. In a book, you have to actually write something down. And so the way that you write it has to be very um, effective if you're trying to do understatement because that's what I'm trying to do for this book is not make it where things are so obvious. Um, I'm trying to make it more subtle. And how you do how you write subtlety in a book is uh, challenging. I've never really done that as much um, as I've been doing on this book. You say that because you want to sort of force the reader to engage more in whatever that direction is, or what's the reason behind doing that? Um, the book's going to be pretty short. It's only going to be around sixty pages. Um, it's a fantasy novel, and I'm not going to spend a lot. I'm not spending almost any time doing world building. There's only one race of people in the entire book. Um, I'm tr- what I'm trying to do is, tri- for the lack of a better word, trigger the reader's imagination so that they fill in the blanks. And the, a scene that I'm really been studying is that scene from Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader turns to Boba Fett and just says, "I want them alive, no disintegrations." And Boba <laughs> Fett kind of does this as you wish that scene you know people were having this to whole debate the star wars geeks and, and der, uh, nerds they're having debates over why boba fett is perceived as this kind of badass well it's because of this scene it's, it's about because one person would say well nothing actually happens in the movies it doesn't do anything really cool that you're missing the point he he set it up where everyone filled in the blanks of like what this guy did out outside of the movies and i think that that's why the star wars movies despite not showing a lot just by referencing things in a in a good manner. So that's what I'm trying to do is where you you don't have to know a lot about Boba Fett to just know when Darth Vader's telling him don't kill everyone, that's probably means he's good at killing people. So usually that's what he's usually done in the past, right? Yeah. And but it's it's like all these things that are just packed into one very tightly written uh scene where you have the villain telling this guy that nobody knows anything about that i you know don't disintegrate these people fill in the blank you know like you have everybody else that you've ever tried to capture or something like that and the other thing is boba fett is not like he just totally completely motionless stilled cool and says as you wish he's not like in a hurry to placate vader right so he's not afraid of him 
So that tells us all, all this other stuff. So it's like, okay, that's kind of what, you know, what you do is you make these references that that people can just pick up on. And it's a challenge because I, I haven't done that at least consciously or, or, or intentionally tried to do in a book. Um, but I'm not I'm not going to spend a ton of time describing stuff because it's like I'm not going to write anything original in terms of a world that somebody else hasn't done. There's been so many fantasy novels. It's like, what's a way to do it differently? How about just not talking about it, 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 it almost at all? Like leaving yeah. it up for to think about. And, um, you know, I, I, I saw my buddy's copy of like the Game of Thrones sequel or whatever that's a thousand pages. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm almost writing a, an anti-fantasy novel or, or whatever you want to call it, where there's only really a, a handful of characters, very short book, no different races, um, and they, you know, it's very, it's a very straightforward story. You know, I've, I've had, I've talked about the same thing with everyone I've talked to in these podcasts so far is that first of all, you know, the, the length of novels and the length of stories in the past were, weren't driven by what the author, how long the author thought it should be. It was generally yeah. driven by the publisher, here's how much we want so we can sell it for $35. So it needs to be so many pages long and we right. need this. Or if you're publishing in a magazine, we need to fill up this many pages. So the closer you get to this number, the more likely we are to take your story over that guy. Whereas now with self-publishing, that's open wide where authors can write however long or short they want to. And I think things are getting shorter and I think part of it is because, and this is, I'm just pulling this totally out of my uh, ear, but it's almost like we've got generations and generations brought up on movies and TV. People are better at like visualizing things right. in some way. I think people catch on to stories much better because in a way, you know, every television show and movie we've watched is similar in some ways to 10,000 years ago when somebody was telling us a story in a cave. <laughs> um, and so you don't necessarily, for economic reasons or for, I guess, technical reasons, have to go into 50 pages of description. And right. I think people's attention spans have shortened somewhat and they want action, yeah. they want to get to the end of it. So writing shorter makes more sense now. Yeah, and that's... um. That's partly what I, there's some, there's some notes. I've taken a lot of notes for this book. Um, and one of them is do not write anything that doesn't need to be said. Um, and you're, you, the, 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 everything needs to be action. It's very much in action. Like as soon as one scene ends, there's more action on the next page, that kind of thing. Um, and partly actually, <laughs> I just watched this movie the other night. It's an anime film called Redline. It is the most intense movie I've ever seen in my life. That movie, there is no downtime in that movie. And even when there's like just having conversations, the characters are like, it's dialed up to like their intensity level emotionally. And so, you know, you're always, you never relax or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's true. People's attention spans have gone down. Um, I think the other part of it is we don't need a whole lot of visual cues or, or visual descriptions. You know, you can just say uh, you can give I'm, what I'm trying to do with this book or, or maybe just experimenting is giving real life references 
-hmm. so that people can just fill in the blanks. So the, the, it, to give a little bit of the book uh, uh, plot, it's about a, a boy from our world, uh, you know, 16, 17, who gets transported to a, a, another world. And so I'm able to use actual real life references to stuff like, you know, the Great Plains, you know, it reminded them of the Great Plains or it reminded them of the, so that way I don't need to go into more detail with the reader. Right. The reader can figure it out for their own or, um, you know, you, also another thing I'm doing, which is really interesting, I've never done this before and I'm, I'm not sure how to do it uh, perfectly, but I really want the protagonist to not talk. I'm trying as much as possible to have him not talk in this book um, okay. because I'm, what I'm trying to do is have his actions and people's reaction to him tell you what you want, what you need to know about him as much as possible. And now you do see things from his perspective and occasionally it'll give some inner dialogue um, to just help the reader, because if I don't do it from a, his point of view, I can't use real life references because you're not seeing it from his his thought. But it, the lack right. of commentary inner dialogue also means that he's quiet in his mind as much as, as he is in speech. But um, that it's just interesting. I think that people have money more than they have time. They they're they're so there there's more competition for their time than there is their money. And so if people will buy, unless it's like Game of Thrones or something like that, how many people actually, I've read books where I've skimmed through the books, right? I've just, you know, I've been able to follow it because they're such, they're written in such a way that it's easy to follow. Mm -hmm. But you skip over passages. And so I don't want to write for this book any passage that's going to get skipped over. Yeah. And I think any, that's, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say any, these days in particular, I read the first Game of Thrones book, and when I finished, you know, I it reminded me of reading Dostoevsky or... I, I, I'm reading that book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, and I had to stop reading. I like, I don't have time to go through this. <laughs> the, summer, the summer I graduated, no, the summer of my senior year of college, I worked a job during the day, and... I was pretty well broke. So most nights I just came home and I read Brothers Karamazov all summer long and that's all I really did. And then the following the following year was between college and grad school. I did the same thing and I read Crime and Punishment every night after work when I got home. I'd read it during my lunch break at work. And that was that was with the exception of assignments in school. I never read a book that long again. I just, I can't, I can't do it. I read um, Anna Karenina and I could follow the plot, but I skipped over probably at least 80 to 90 pages where I was just, it was completely unnecessary. And going back to what you're saying about how they, you know, they wrote books back then to be serialized or just long. Uh, it's the same thing with a lot of the older books. I honestly think that they need to, there needs to be a new translation of those books, not from a different language, but from just to fit with the times in terms of not changing the story. But Dostoevsky's books were never properly edited. As soon as they were transcribed, he didn't actually write them. He dictated them. As soon as they were transcribed and finished, he sent them off and they were published because he always was, you know, doing it on the jump of the, you know, the right, um, uh, you know, right, right when they were due. And so somebody needs to go through. Or, or should it would be a benefit to go and just remove the unnecessary stuff from it, and the same with a lot of other these these other books. I mean, 
Count of Monte Cristo, I read that, and it was an incredibly unstructured book. Um, you know, it has a lot of great elements to it, but the book was just not well structured at all. It needed a lot of editing. And the same with a lot of these older books where they are just dragging things out. And I understand that they're not, they weren't written as a full book, but they need, they, so that, so I read a lot of classic abridged versions. I don't think I missed out on anything, to be honest. I think that they just cut out stuff that, you know, would you miss it if it weren't there? Well, the answer is for a lot of them, no. So, you know, if I was writing 100 years ago, my fantasy novel would probably be much longer because I'd have to include all this other stuff. But now I can just throw in a few real life references or analogies or comparisons and then um, and then people get it. They're like, oh, OK, you know, visual. You provide just enough visual stimulation to keep their imagination, you know, building up on it. Um, I think, and I, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. It's probably going to, you know, take a couple of tries to get around to it. But I think that that's where I want to go um, as a writer is write very, very little. Um, just because that's one, that's what readers want. And I just don't have time to write 4,000 words a day and then go back through a 200 page book at, for, for all that other stuff and then edit the book and all that. You know, it's, it's, uh, we're kind of going back, at least I'm going back to the pulps in terms of writing where that's the kind of style. Um, well, I think a lot of, I think a lot of good fiction as the 20th century wore on. And honestly, I don't, I don't read a lot of new stuff now, uh, fiction wise that comes out of the literary publishers. Anyway, I read most of what I read now is self published stuff, um, which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in that. But it's like you said, a lot of the strongest characterization comes from saying as little as necessary rather than as much as possible. And right. I thought your example of uh, Boba Fett is a good one because you get a whole sense of his character without having to get any backstory at all. Right. You just know who he is by the way he interacts with Vader. Right. That's actually what I'm trying to do with this book. I don't, I kind of throw the main character in in the middle of something and i do a little bit of like intro for the other characters but i'm trying to come up with ways to give descriptions where they're it's like they're talking to each other about someone else who's a character in the book what do i want them to say that's going to tell the reader everything they need to know in like a sentence in one sentence of you know whatever it is that's actually going to and also sound authentic because that's the thing that worked about boba fett is it just came off as believable that, you know, Darth Vader saying this to this bounty hunter who's got he's like he's faceless. Right. He's got the he's got the ultimate poker. face, Right. And he just says, as you wish. And that's it. <laughs> There's a lot of people who tried to do that, but it has to come off as believable. Um, and so I'm also thinking about that with the, the you know, the main villain. And I was actually talking about that on Twitter with uh, and Ren Rollo Tomasi and others were responding to it. But I was like. I'm trying to figure out how to do this villain in a way that he's not going to come off like he he's genuinely going to seem believable in terms of ter terrifying and creating conflict and tension um, for the book. Even though I'm not, I don't have a lot of opportunity to show him do anything, right? Right. All this background about what he has done that tells you everything about what he can do. Well, I think what you said about uh, authenticity in a single sentence that is a good. That is a good technique and goal to shoot for. When is this uh, book going to be out? 
You know, good question. I'm I'm working on it now. I'm I'm over halfway done. Okay. And I'm trying to think this is a book that I could actually see being really popular. I, and it's funny I people say, "Well, what about the stringers?" I wrote the stringers years ago and it's a lot it's a little bit longer of a book to read. It's not it's it's three times as long as this book, if not more. Mm -hmm. Um and so I've also learned a lot as a writer. My hope is probably to have it published next year. I also am starting to try and do audiobook. Um, and for this one, I think that that would be um, appropriate. I have just in mind the kind of voice that I want for the book. But uh, you know, I've got so many other different projects on on the pipeline um, that I'm trying to publish this year that um, I, I'm I, I sometimes overcommit to stuff. <laughs> I'm writing a book. I'm editing a book. I'm publishing a book. I'm about to publish a book. Um, okay. So yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's it's I, I like being busy in that sense, but a lot of it is it's in the pipeline and stuff isn't isn't coming out. One thing I have learned is, and I was talking about this uh, on we were talking about this on Masculine Geek a couple weeks ago, or I think last week, is when you're ready to have a book published, you got to do kind of a build up campaign, you know, to get get people's interest instead of just coming right out of the gate with your horse standing still, right? You know, you want you want to you want that uh, that prepped. Uh, revved up engine. Don't come out of the gate with your horse standing still. Yeah. <laughs> publishing philosophy of T.J. Martineau. Because <laughs> I've got um, a book that uh, uh, it's like a Beowulf style poem, and okay. there was an audio book. Uh, it's set in a place called the Enchantments, which is near where I actually live. So the cover art is using actual real life, a physical location. And I had Jack Napier, who's um, our, our uh, mutual friend from the uh, Netherlands. He did the narration, and I've gotten a very, very positive feedback on that. So I'm still Excellent. waiting for the cover art done. And when that's done, I'm going to do a build-up campaign um, for its release probably sometime in April. Um, but that's another one where I can see that doing really well. Um, in terms of just popular appeal, there's not a lot of – like for example, the Stringers is more of a political, like it's a political thriller, so it talks about politics and stuff like that. Whereas Song of Wolfgar's straightforward fantasy novel, um, the new one I'm working on is just a straightforward fantasy novel. So I don't mind, or I, I'm I'm more comfortable trying to market that out to more people because people are going to just read it and enjoy it, and they're not going to be like trying to read into it, or at least that's not my hope. So where can uh, people keep up with all of these projects online? How can they keep up? <laughs> Um, they can go to my website, tjmarnell.com. I have a newsletter that they can subscribe to. I don't send out a lot. I only send them out when there's something new to discuss, like a new book or whatever. I'm not spamming people's inboxes with um, stuff. Uh, there's links to all my books on my website. I do my Mountain Pass podcast on SoundCloud and occasionally upload it to YouTube. I'm, I'm going to try to start doing live streams, especially when uh, my book is going to be released. And so one thing I do say is when people buy my physical books, they get the digital version for free. So I'm really trying to encourage people to buy more and more of the, the physical, kind of like what we were just discussing um, right. and with everything that's going on. Excellent. Oh, I forgot. I have another book that's being published by Terror House Magazine. Um, in, it's going to be serialized on their website next month. It's going to be published in the summer, um, and it's called The Pilgrim's Digress. And it is a kind of an anti it's kind of an anti dystopian um, novel. I don't want to reveal. It's about a bounty hunter, um, so I'll leave it at that. 
Title's great. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, TJ. We appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed it. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I guess. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me on.